Hello, my name is Dr. Paul Wheatley-Price, a medical oncologist and president of Lung Cancer Canada. Welcome to our podcast series called Lung Cancer Voices. In this series of podcasts, I'm interviewing patients, caregivers, healthcare professionals, some of the leading lung cancer researchers in the country, indeed in the world, to highlight important and relevant issues facing those affected by lung cancer. On part one of this special series of episodes, we're discussing promising new research presented at the 2020 American Society of Clinical Oncology annual meeting and the 2020 International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer World Conference on Lung Cancer Presidential Symposium. And I'm joined by three internationally renowned medical oncologists. The discussion first aired as a live webinar, which we've now split into two podcasts, and we hope you find it informative. Welcome everyone to this webinar um, that we're putting on from Lung Cancer Canada, and it, it will also be available as a podcast on the Lung Cancer Voices uh, Lung Cancer uh, uh, podcast uh, coming up. Uh, so as you've heard, we've got um, three great guests. Professor Popat as uh, a medical oncologist at the Royal Marsden, really got a, an international reputation in, in uh, thoracic malignancies. Uh, Dr. Jonathan Rees is also a thoracic medical oncologist who's a uh, specialist at the UC Davis Comprehensive Cancer Center in Sacramento. And uh, Jonathan and I currently uh, co-chairing a, a study together, which, is, uh, which has been really neat uh, experience. And then um, my Canadian colleague, Dr. Ros Jurgens, who is a medical oncologist at the Jurovinsky Cancer Center in Hamilton. She runs the clinical trials unit and the lung cancer group there. And as you heard, runs the medical advisory committee for us. So ASCO, the American Society of Clinical Oncology, hold the biggest cancer meeting uh, in the world every year. It's normally about 50,000, 40 to 50,000 delegates who descend on Chicago uh, in late May, early June. And of course, that didn't happen live this year, but it did happen in a virtual format. And the World Conference on Lung Cancer is the biggest uh, conference just dedicated to lung cancer. And that was due to have been in Singapore just uh, just last week. So we, we may all have been scheduled to be in Singapore. It's now been postponed to January 2021, and it will be a virtual meeting there. Uh, however, they did put on a presidential symposium at, at World Lung just last weekend, where three or four uh, top pieces of lung cancer research were presented. So ASCO and World Lung become two of the main um, conduits for us learning the latest advances and research studies that are coming out, advancing uh, the science and hopefully ultimately then improving lives and often the treatments that we use in the clinic have been presented in years past at these conferences. So uh, Dr. Popat, Dr. Reese, and Dr. Jurgens have very kindly um, just prepared some thoughts on uh, the, the highlights of these meetings and what we're going to do is I'm going to go around to each of them and they're going to uh, tell us about one of these um, uh, new innovations that is coming to the clinic um, and then uh, and, and then we'll move around. And so if you do have questions, you know, use the chat box and we'll come to them. We'll come to them later on. So um, I think we're going to start with maybe the, the potentially the most impactful study of them all. Um, so, Professor Popat, you're going to tell us a little bit about the ADORA study, A-D-A-U-R-A. Yeah, thanks, Paul. Um, this is a really uh, highly anticipated study. We uh, have been ex looking forward and expecting the results for some time. Uh, and they're finally presented at the ASCO uh, meeting uh, in uh, uh, 
uh, in the end of May, uh, beginning of July, uh, June. And this was looking at patients with EGFR mutation positive disease who have got early lung cancer. They've had the cancer, it's been completely removed. And for those that needed their chemotherapy, they've had their chemotherapy. And in those that didn't need it or decided that it wasn't the right thing for them with them and their oncologist didn't have it. And the question was, if we took a big group of these patients, there are in fact 600 patients in this trial approximately, uh, if uh, uh, half of those patients were actually given a, a EGFR inhibitor, osimertinib, which we uh, use in patients with widespread metastatic disease, and half of the patients were given placebo. It's a randomized phase three trial. And the aim of the trial was to see whether those patients that got osimertinib, the disease was going to be delayed, something called disease free survival, not whether they were going to live longer or a combination of living longer and the disease being under control, just whether it would prevent relapses. And the patients were asked to take the osimertinib or the placebo. They didn't know what it was. The patients, did, uh, the doctors didn't know what it was for up to three years. And the independent data monitoring committee who keep an eye on the safety and the outcome of the data uh, paused the study early and what is called unblinded the study, asked uh, the company to release the data, and that's what we heard. And it showed a spectacular benefit for patients that were randomly allocated to receive osimertinib. What it showed is that patients that had osimertinib, they, it pushed back the time of their relapse by about 80%, relatively speaking, compared to those that uh, uh, didn't have the osimertinib. And if you look at sort of another way of looking at it is if you follow up the patients for about three years, about uh, 10 to 20% of those patients were alive who didn't get the, who were disease free, i.e. still in a remission, who didn't get the osimertinib compared to 80% of patients who did get the osimertinib. And, you know, that's a big, big, big difference. The study hadn't really followed up the patients for too long a period of time. So we have no idea whether it allows those patients to live longer. We don't know whether it allows them to live better. All we do know is that using osimertinib for EGFR mutant patients that have had lung cancer resected delays really quite considerably the time until it comes back. And because we don't know whether it makes people live longer, there's a big debate as to what the, this really means for us and our patients. So th thank you for that overview. Let me just make sure I, I get this out right. So EGFR positive lung cancer, and that's around 15% of lung cancers, yep. uh, at least in, in Ottawa, but different regions, it's maybe more common or less common. And so... It, this is for people whose cancer is diagnosed very early, where we hope it's curable, they've had an operation to remove it, and this is to reduce the risk of a recurrence. And the provisional data is that it reduces the risk of a recurrence by 80%. Yeah. Ah, yeah. So, but we're waiting, but because this the, the committee stopped it early, we don't have long-term follow-up, and maybe, maybe it's just a temporary a temporary prevention of relapse and those people might relapse anyway later or do you think it's actually a cure or do we not know that yet we don't know and this is you know some of the great uncertainty that we have we don't know whether those patients that were randomly allocated to complete three years of treatment at the end of stopping that three years of treatment are going to 
naturally relapse anyway. But more importantly, we don't know whether those patients that didn't get the osimertinib, if they just lived their normal life with their um, lung cancer being followed up by their team as per normal, but then have the osimertinib at the time at which they need it, which is when it comes back, does that actually make them live uh, the same amounts as those that got it early? So are you, are you, you know, are you, if you give it early in patients that have had the lung cancer cut out, are you making them live any longer as a consequence of that? You're certainly pushing out the time until relapse, but we don't, we don't know whether it makes them live any longer. And that's one of the big uncertainties. Okay, so you might just be giving them a drug earlier than they will inevitably be getting it anyway, yeah. or or potentially it's not that it's actually improving cure, and we don't know. We don't know, but you know that's that's you know some of the big issues because you know some people will say, you know, I don't want it to come back, uh, and if right. you can give me something that's going to prevent it from coming back, hey, I want it now. And other people, you know, might say, well, you know, I don't really want to take anything now. Uh, I'll take my chances. And that's some of the, the critique that we have. So if I was going to put you on the hot seat now, Sanjay, and say, you know, what would you do if uh, there's a patient in your clinic? I have two or three patients in this exact scenario in my clinic right now. Are you, are you advising this or is it even available in the UK? Well, it's certainly not available in the UK. It hasn't got a license for this setting in Europe and then okay. it needs to be costed. Um, and so in the UK, this is a theoretical discussion. But I have to say okay. the benefit is, is absolutely huge. And, you know, I think it would be very hard of me to say to a patient, you shouldn't have it, um, okay. you know, keep it until relapse. I, I suspect that when I have that discussion, I'm yeah. going to be saying to patients to have it. Maybe I could come to you, Jonathan, in California, because you're in a different healthcare system than, uh, than in the UK and in Canada. Are, are you advising this already? Yes. I mean, I, th I thought there were some, you know, excellent points that, that you and Dr. Pellup brought up. I mean, I think, you know, looking at the data overall, you know, as mentioned, a, a dramatic difference in disease-free survival, particularly for the stage 3A patients, the more locally advanced. Um, uh, so, but we still don't know overall survival benefit. And if you look at the other trials done with earlier generation EGFR TKIs, like the SELECT trial with Erlotinib, you know, as soon as they were stopped, there was a steep drop off in recurrence. Uh, but to my mind, the, the disease-free survival benefit is so profound, particularly for these 3A patients that when I have discussed, you know, in those situations, I have recommended two patients, you know, with some caveats, you know, for stage three, you know, often our practice is to do post-operative radiation therapy and those patients were excluded from that trial. So potentially uh, from Adora, so potentially an increased risk of pneumonitis. And so there's some differences in practice that may not fit exactly with the eligibility criteria for the trial, particularly for stage three. But overall, the, the difference was, was so profound for disease-free survival. I do offer it to patients. I think for stage 1B, if you break it down, the, um, the, the, the magnitude of benefit um, uh, was still good, but was less. So I think that's, right. that's also a, a discussion with patients. But the bottom line is yes. Maybe we could just, just explain the stage 1B lung cancers are the really tiny, tiny lung cancers with no spread anywhere, where the risk of a recurrence is quite low anyway versus stage three lung cancers, which are still curable, but it's harder because either they're much bigger when they're taken out or they've started to spread to lymph nodes. 
Um, I'm going to move on in the interest of time. Um, and what I think we'll go to Dr. Jurgens next. Um, so EGFR, positive lung cancer, is this subset, which is around 13 to 15%, depending on where you are, uh, or, or higher in, in, in some places. Like, like Vancouver, for example, is much higher rate. Um, but ALK lung cancer is only around 3 to 5% of lung cancers. But just at the World Conference Presidential Symposium last weekend, Dr. Jurgens, there was a new drug presented. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, so ALK honestly is a uh, driver mutation in lung cancer that I think inspires all of us who practice within lung cancer because it's a target that we didn't even identify until the 2000s. And now we're looking at potentially uh, six licensed drugs uh, to combat this, uh, this type of lung cancer. Um, so what we got to see at the World Lung Cancer uh, Presidential Symposium was the presentation of the EXALT-3 trial, which is looking at uh, a compound called Ensartinib. So Ensartinib uh, blocks the signaling uh, when ALK is uh, mutated in lung cancer. Um, and Sartanib falls into the group of drugs that we would consider next generation ALK inhibitors. Um, things that are important for that grouping of drugs are that they do get into brain a bit better and they're a bit more potent. Now, all of the ALK inhibitors also tend to, to hit other things. So Ensartanib uh, is also being evaluated, not only in ALK, but also in uh, another translocation called TREK. Um, this trial looked at uh, patients who had uh, advanced lung cancer, and they were randomized to either Ensartanib or the previous standard of care, which is a drug called Crizotinib. Crizotinib was the first in class ALK inhibitor that was approved. And it was quite obvious that insartinib is highly effective in contrast to crizotinib. So you're looking at a uh, median progression-free survival. So the amount of time that someone stays on a drug before the cancer starts to grow to a significant degree um, of just under uh, 26 months, so 25.8 months, so over two years. Um, this is in comparison to just over a year at 12.7 months, uh, which is what we saw with the crizotinib. Now you'd again think that this would be a, a game changer when you're seeing a more than doubling in the amount of time that someone is able to stay on a compound. Um, but this is coming on the back of now two other compounds that have had similar effects. So a drug called electinib and then a drug called brigatinib. Um, so we already have in Canada, uh, Health Canada approval and in most provinces funding for electinib in the frontline setting, which showed similar benefits um, with about a two-year improvement in progression-free survival. Um, Brigatinib just uh, updated their frontline data. Um, that was in the Journal of Clinical Oncology just this week. I think Dr. Poppett was the senior uh, author on that. So cheers to you, Sanjay. Um, well, well spotted. Yeah, and uh, that also showed a similar prolongation in uh, progression-free survival. And then if you're following uh, the business press, uh, there's another compound called lorlatinib that also met its primary endpoint for progression-free survival. Um, I don't think, well, maybe some people are uh, in the inner workings of this, but we don't know the number publicly as to what the increase in the progression-free survival is for lorlatinib, but I presume it's going to be coming to a meeting <laughs> soon so that we'll get to see what it looks like. 
I think really the challenge for us, Paul, is 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 choice. Um, so, um, you know, what is the preferred drug when you're when you're looking at how we choose the first compound we're going to use for patients? Um, and there are differences between the drugs. They've got different side effect profiles, um, different number of tablets. So for example, a couple of the more recent ones, the Brigatinib and now the Insartinib is just one pill once a day in contrast to some of the others that are multiple pills multiple times a day. Um, and from my perspective, we as medical oncologists would like to be able to have choice, um, to be able to guide our patients and look at their medical issues and make a determination of what drug might suit them best. Um, so we'll see if this comes to, to Canada. We have not had a lot of experience in Canada with Insartinib, um, but with this uh, clinical trial, I expect that they will be coming uh, to look about registration uh, in our district. So, Roz, I guess I'll, I'll ask you, and then maybe uh, Sanjay, as you, you're really an internationally known ALK lung cancer expert. Um, Insartanib then, so it's another ALK drug, and you mentioned crizotinib, electinib, brigatinib, lolatinib, seritinib. Is this just another brand of cornflakes on the shelf? And we, you know, if you like cornflakes, sure, pick it if you want, but there's others that are just as tasty. Um, or is this really something new? Because to me, it looked like, sure, it's a good drug, it's clearly effective, but maybe it's not any better than Electinib, which is what you know for us is mostly the what we're prescribing now. Is it is it is it a new brand of cereal, Roz? Well, I think it's tricky, right? Because everybody has different experiences with different drugs. Um, where I think this becomes challenging, Paul, is what options you leave behind you. Um, so for example, um, if I prescribed lorlatinib in the frontline setting, there is no known other ALK TKI that has benefit once I've gone down the path of lorlatinib. It hasn't particularly been studied well because it's been the big granddaddy of, of coverage of resistance. So we're definitely looking at moving on to chemotherapy after that type of drug. Um, I haven't seen as much sequencing data on what it looks like after and sartanib and what compounds have looked like just because it's one of the newer agents. Um, so that's going to be the trick in counseling patients is I've got a pretty clear path after electinib, right? I, I will try other next generation ALK TKIs with the hope of benefit, um, but it, it, it may not be true for all of them. And uh, Professor Popat, what, what would you say? Is, is that yeah, the issue yeah, here? Yeah. Is it sequencing and, and having a longer term strate uh, strategy? Yeah, I, I, I think it's about thinking about where you're going with that patient. And I think with outpatients, we have a slightly different uh, view on where they go if they have disease in their brain at presentation compared to without, because they behave in a slightly different manner. And you have to think much more about the disease in the brain uh, for those that have it at the outset compared to those that don't. And you know, as Ros has pointed out, loladenib has got fantastic intracranial response, but it's extracranial response when you've used it after other first-generation inhibitors is um, not as great as it could be. It's predominantly very good intracranial 
benefit and it also covers very well all the resistance mechanisms that have been identified at least ALK based. I guess one of the things with Entartinib is we haven't got very good robust data with uh, the intracranial activity uh, in exalt 3 the number of patients with intracranial metastases was relatively small actually uh, and so it'd be good to get some more data on that and actually the resistance mechanism of ensartanib is not the dominant G1202R mutation that we see with um, uh, electinib. And so maybe that there's a mechanism by which we can squeeze that out as a better vulnerability with the way we sequence our drugs. So I, I think the science isn't really that mature yet for use, for how we're going to fit in ensartanib into our paradigm, but it very much does depend on what other drugs you have available to use and sequence and um, uh, the, the longer term strategy. Yeah, I think we're, and Paul, you know this as well as I, um, we have Health Canada approval for both uh, seritinib, uh, electinib, brigatinib, um, and lorlatinib after failure of prizotinib. And lorlatinib is the only one that is Health Canada approved after more than one TKI. Um, none of them are funded. So we don't have funding for lorlatinib. We don't have funding for brigatinib that we might want to use after that. Um, and that truly does handicap us. And I'm, yeah. I, I would imagine, Sanjay, that you live in a similar world. I think Jonathan gets to play with all the candies in the jars, um, but we don't necessarily have access. Yeah, I mean, I think access is, is the biggest issue. And, uh, um, you know, working out how we can sequence these, these, these correctly is going to be, I think, the biggest challenge over the next few years. I think for those of you listening should know that Lung Cancer Canada, you know, we, we really provide quite strong um, uh, advocacy for access to, um, to all of these new drugs, uh, actually, which Dr. Jurgens leads through our medical advisory committee. So thank you, Roz, for that. Um, what we'll do now, we'll move on to the next one. And, and while we're staying on these, what we call oncogene-driven cancers, these subtypes with a, a, a particular molecular mutation. So we heard about EGFR from from Professor Popat and then Alk from Dr. Jurgen. So now we're gonna move on to a new one uh, called HER2, which you may have heard about in breast cancer. And Dr. Reese, um, there's a study from, uh, from ASCO that um, in, in that area that you're gonna uh, discuss with us. Yes, uh, thanks so much. And it's, it's great to be here. And I, uh, so I wanted to discuss an abstract that was presented at ASCO. Um, that, that was, it was the Destiny Lung 01 trial, and, and it's looking at a, an antibody drug conjugate called trastuzumab deruxican, uh, and it was focused in patients with HER2 mutated metastatic non-small cell lung cancer. And so uh, HER2 mutations represent about 2% or so uh, of non-small cell lung cancer, mainly lung adenocarcinoma, which is the most common in histology. Like EGFR, it's associated more with people who, who don't have a, a large smoking history or who have never smoked. Uh, and I would just highlight that these mutations are distinct from, for example, HER2 overexpression or amplification, um, which is mainly noted in breast cancer, where many of these drugs, including this drug, um, at least in the U.S., is FDA approved. And so 
Um, this trial looked at this drug, which is an antibody drug conjugate. Um, these are a class of drugs where you have the, this antibody, um, which is the, the sequence is basically very, is the same as trastuzumab, also known as Herceptin, that's you know, approved in, in breast cancer, and linked to a chemotherapy payload that delivers the chemotherapy to when there's uh, potentially a HER2 mutation, or they also looked at a cohort of overexpression, uh, where, it's, where it's, the expression is elevated, but not necessarily this mutation within the gene. But what was presented at ASCA was focused on these HER2 mutations, which represent about 2% of non-small cell lung cancer. Um, and they found striking activity. So they, they looked at 42 patients, you know, 2%. It's, a, it's an uncommon uh, group of patients, but we do see many of these patients. And, um, you know, the, the response rate was about 60%, response being substantial tumor shrinkage. Uh, and, and the average time of what we call progression-free survival, um, which is the time uh, of that a patient's on study where the cancer hasn't meaningfully grown, uh, was was 14.1 months. So so a bit over a year, which is which is really good for this this type of treatment. Um, and patients who had good tumor shrinkage on the time they were on trial, it wasn't reached the average amount of time before things started meaningfully growing again. And, and overall, it was, it was fairly well tolerated. There were some fatigue, some GI side effects and nausea, but low blood counts, it's delivering a chemotherapy payload. Um, we always worry with these drugs about something called pneumonitis, um, where there's inflammation of the lungs. And that happened in about 12% of patients, but we, we grade these by severity and it was grade two and grade three and four, the more severe forms. So um, it, it, it seemed that um, it was in a minority of patients and it wasn't you know, as, as extreme where they needed significant interventions uh, to manage it. So overall, I thought this was a, a great success of, of, of a study for this patient population where we haven't had any approved targeted therapies as opposed to EGFR and all the great data that you heard about ALK. So um, I think it's a really exciting advance. It's a small group of patients. It's nice. It would be nice to see how more patients do going through. There are a subset where of lung cancers where the, the, there's amplification or overexpression. It'd be great to see how those do it. You know, HER2 is sometimes a mechanism of resistance to other targeted therapies. So does this drug work in, in those patients who, who outwit other cancer drugs by that mechanism? So I think it's a really exciting development. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. And, and these drug antibody conjugates, we haven't really seen them in lung cancer much. There's been a few that have been studied in small cell lung cancer, haven't there? But, uh, and I, I like your payload uh, analogy. I sometimes think of it as the, the UPS or FedEx being an efficient delivery system, and that's the antibody. And then the package that it brings to your doors is the chemo that will then destroy those cancer cells. And, and it's been remarkable in the last few years, adding on to EGFR and ALK, ROS1, RET, uh, NTRAC, uh, HER2, BRAF, uh, um, you know, there's all of these now different molecular subtypes with with drugs and HER2 is probably, you know, the, the, the newest one. And I think some of the numbers you mentioned there that 60% of the cancers were shrinking and it was controlling the cancer for over a year, very similar to when EGFR drugs started to come on uh, the first round of EGFR drugs and crizotinib as the first drug for out were very similar numbers and they rapidly were adopted. So how yeah, excited are you, Jonathan? It's only 40 patients. So are we putting the cart ahead of the horse? 
Well, I mean, if, if you look at, for example, Ross one lung cancer, which represents about a similar amount of patients that are, you know, um, the similar amount of patients, about 2% of lung cancers. I mean, crizotinib, which was mentioned as an ALK inhibitor, also inhibits ROS1. I mean, that got at least approved here in the U.S. based upon a 50-patient clinical trial. So I do, I do think there needs to be more numbers, but I don't, you know, it's not going to be the, I don't think for approval, you need these large randomized studies. I think if they get additional patients and show this type of efficacy, I would think that it would get um, an approval because of, you know, the progression-free survival of 14 months is, is meaningful for patients. I think it's interesting that, you know, you brought up a great point about, um, you know, you know, the initial, like, for example, the early EGFR tyrosine kinase inhibitors, you know, the, the, the antibodies that bind to the outside didn't have as great success when we, these were in development versus the, the PEL tyrosine, kin tyrosine kinase inhibitors. So it's nice to see that, that these class of drugs that have that antibody with the chemotherapy payload are having this type of activity um, because it's a different strategy and you hope it can potentially could be extended to, um, to other molecular subtypes using these types of classes of drugs. Right. So I think that's, a, that's an exciting development too in a different way of, of, of attacking these, these oncogene-driven cancers. Dr. Jurgens, what do you think this 42-patient study, is, is that going to be enough to persuade Canadian regulators? Ah. So regulators are one thing. Um, you know, Health Canada, I think, has been very open-minded. You know, they approved crizotinib for Ross, uh, again, with single-arm data. The bigger hurdle for us is our health technology assessment, and I'm sure Sanjay has the same problem. Whereas we're, we're looking for value for our money and um, the certainty that those assessments have around the benefits um, becomes less and less when it's a smaller number of patients and it's not a randomized trial. Um, so this drug could possibly go to Health Canada um, and get approved for its safety profile. Um, but I think trying to get it funded will be a, a further stretch. But I will tell you, Paul, I was excited enough about it um, that I have mentioned this data to my cohort of HER2 positive uh, patients. I actually, uh, I, I won't uh, call this person out, but I can see one of my patients out there uh, attending the webinar. So hello to you. Um, and I, I am excited to finally see us get something in this space because we've tried all the old breast cancer drugs and they didn't do much. Um, so I'm very excited to see a new strategy have some hope, especially it's that durability of response that really has me excited about it. Okay. And maybe finally, I've got one more question about her too, or maybe, maybe Sanjay, I can come to you for this. Um, for, for patients who are listening to this, how would they know if they have this subtype of lung cancer? Is it, is it what happens at the Royal Marsden or in, across yeah, the UK? I is mean, it routinely you, tested for? Or how do you get, how do you find out? <laughs> You, you can't tell just by looking at a patient whether they're HER2 positive. You have to test the tumor. Uh, and HER2 testing isn't, isn't common, to be honest with you, in, in many parts of the world. It's, it's certainly uh, not routine uh, in the UK. We have a nationalized genomic test directory and HER2 testing is not routine. But, you know, uh, many patients in the UK will have HER2 assessment as part of a broader panel of, of, of genetics uh, workup that they get on their 
their tumor. So, you know, in general, as Jonathan was saying, this tends to be people who've minimal tobacco exposure. So I always say, if you've got a patient who's got minimum tobacco exposure and you haven't found the driver, go hunting further because there will be one. Right. right. And I think increasingly we'll, we're having more opportunity to and more tests available to do this. Thank you again for joining us. Thanks to our producer, Ryan Mullen. Please send us your feedback, like and follow us on Facebook at LungCan, on Twitter at LungCancer underscore Can, and on Instagram at LungCancerCanada. For more information about lung cancer or to donate, volunteer or share your story, visit our webpage at lungcancercanada.ca.